If you would this morning, let's go to Mark chapter 16. And I believe that uh, next Sunday will probably be our last message in the book of Mark. And I'm, I'm praying about where the Lord have us go next. But I do believe that I'm going to hit some of the smaller New Testament books. So we'll be able to hit more books in a shorter period of time. And um, really praying about maybe going to Jude to begin with. Maybe hit uh, Philemon and some of these smaller uh, pastoral epistles. And so we'll just pray and see what the Lord have us to do. But uh, it's always encouraging when you, you know, you do get through a book. You feel like you've uh, accomplished something. Hopefully uh, we've learned something. I know I have studying it, certainly. And uh, really, I, I feel like texts like today are kind of the reward for the hard work. And uh, we get to look at what we've been singing about this morning. But uh, obviously, as I've mentioned by way of introduction, every sermon, uh, Mark looks at Jesus as the suffering servant is prophesied uh, by Isaiah, most specifically chapter 53. A uh, very fast-moving book concerned much more so with the works of Christ than His words. And uh, in our narrative, we've really been in crucifixion week since Mark chapter 11. And over the last couple of Sunday mornings, we looked at why the cross matters. And we looked specifically in the first part, uh, the cross matters because of the person of the cross. Uh, Roman crucifixion was a common means of execution for the common criminal. Uh, but the reason 2,000 years later and 7,000 miles removed from Jerusalem, we're still praying and preaching and singing about it, is because it was God that died on that cross. It was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and God the Son, the second person of the Godhead, the creator of all things that came into His creation and died for and by His creatures. And if it was not for that, we wouldn't be talking about it. But it's that important. The person of the cross is why it matters. But the second part of that, the cross matters because our position in the cross. If we're saved, our position in Christ never changes. We're the children of God. We're the bride of Christ. We're forgiven of our sin. We have a home in heaven, and that never changes. Our position in Christ never changes. Uh, but let me say this, nothing about the cross matters if He had stayed dead. We're going to talk about the resurrection this morning, which is the very linchpin of Christianity. You take away the resurrection, and we need to sell this church property, go to the house, and do something else, because it doesn't matter. But if He did rise from the dead, it all matters. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. We'll read the first 14 verses. It says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. And he saith unto them, Be not affrighted. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go your way. Tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall you see him, as he said unto you. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulchre, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. 
Now when Jesus was risen early, the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And she went and told them that had been with him as they mourned and wept. And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. After that he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it unto the residue, neither believed they them. Afterward he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and abraded them with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Lord, we're so thankful for this truth. God, it's just so much greater than I could ever do any kind of justice to. God, this is our hope today. And Lord, I'm just uh, praying that if there's somebody here that doesn't know you uh, in the part of their sin, that they don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that today would be the day that you work faith and repentance in their heart, God, that they would believe and be saved from their sin. Uh, God, I pray that for those that are saved, as we face the troubles of life, as we face those dark valleys and times of discouragement, that we would remember uh, this truth, God, that you're alive, Lord, that you rose from the dead on our behalf. And we're forever grateful for that. Fill me your Holy Spirit and empty me of sin self. And uh, God, I just pray that you would speak to our hearts today and that Christ would be magnified. In His name we pray these things. Amen. We're looking this morning, we've looked for a couple of weeks at why the cross matters, but this morning I want to look at why the resurrection matters. Now, the simple question is this. If the resurrection actually happened, why does it matter? I mean, that was 2,000 years ago. Big deal. What does it even mean? Well, the first thing I want you to realize as far as why the resurrection matters Number one, it matters because of the reality of the resurrection. The reality, it really happened. It is a factual, historical event. Look at uh, verse 1 again. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome had bought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a, white, a long white garment, and they were affrighted. And he saith unto them, Be not affrighted. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. Now, as I said, if the resurrection hadn't happened, it wouldn't matter. I mean, just it wouldn't. This whole everything about Christianity goes away. But really for this first point, I'm going to spend a good bit of time here. Uh, you know, I talked about the crucifixion and I talked about historical facts and secular writers and, and I, that stuff intrigues me and I, I really enjoy that and I like that. And, you know, the scriptures, I'm talking about Genesis to Revelation. This is the only book that you can do those things with. The only book that you can take history and line it up with what it says here in the accounts here. And so I've always said truth never fears a challenge. And, and so I'm going to do that at least on some level with the resurrection today. And we're going to talk about some resurrection proofs. Um, and really specifically, I want to start off with this. There, and this intrigues me. And it's intrigued me ever since I went to Israel in 2015. But Mark has a detail here that the other gospel writers do not have. And it says in verse 5 that when they entered into the tomb, the, the sepulcher here, they saw a young man 
And it said, sitting on the right side. The other gospel writers don't include that. Clothed in a long white garment, and they were Friday. Now, first of all, just to clear up any confusion, this man sitting here is an angel. There's no doubt about that. The other gospels make that clear. And everywhere in the Bible that you see an angel appearing unto people, they always appeared as men. Uh, you can look at that all throughout the Scripture. They didn't have wings. They didn't, you know, at least the angelic beings that appeared to people, they didn't appear kind of like the image that we have in our mind. They appeared as men. Uh, one clear example of this was when two angels uh, went into Sodom and Gomorrah to warn Lot and his family that God was going to destroy the place. And the men of Sodom sought them out because they wanted to have relations with them because they thought they were men. And yet they were clearly angels. Same thing here. This is an angel here. But it said specifically that he was sitting on the right side. And, and what I'm about to say to start off, you know, this is not extremely dogmatic. Uh, there's people that would disagree with this. And even if it's not true, it doesn't matter. But I still think it's important to share this with you because of something that I believe and I've studied and I've seen. But in Israel, there are two sites that are considered possible sites of the resurrection, the, re the burial, and then the resurrection of Christ. Uh, one of them is owned by the Catholics, the place of the Holy Sepulcher. I don't buy it. I, I don't, historically, I don't buy it. Geographically, where it's at, I don't buy it. I don't believe it. But there is another place called Gordon's Calvary, and I have been there, and I believe it is the place where Jesus was buried and rose again. It matches the... Logistics, it's north of Jerusalem, it's outside the city. Um, in fact, I'll explain how they found it um, after it had been lost. Uh, but in 1882, a retired British general by the name of, jo of uh, Charles Jordan, excuse me, uh, Charles Gordon, uh, he retired and he was kind of an amateur archaeologist and he moved to Jerusalem because he wanted to kind of piddle around and see if he could find some of these old sites and dig a few things. And, and he noticed as he looked from his uh, apartment building in the northern part of Jerusalem, there's a really big hill outside the city that, man, if you looked at it, it looked just like a skull. It looked like it had eyes and a nose socket. I mean, it looks like a, a skull. And he goes to look at it and he realizes that it's outside the city, it's on the northern side, it's on a hill, and it's right there at a crossroad where people will be traveling. The Romans crucified people in a public place like that so anybody coming and going, would, the first thought they would think when they walked into Jerusalem would be, I don't think I want to cross the Romans. And so it was in a, a perfect place logistically, and he thought, well, if this is the place, there's going to have to be a tomb pretty close, and there's also going to have to be a garden pretty close, because the Bible specifically mentions the garden. So he begins to look around, and he realizes that within just a few hundred yards of this place that looks just like a skull in the side of a mountain. There's a garden there. And he thinks, well, this is looking better and better. So he, he finds the gardener there, the man that's been working that property for years, and he asks him, he said, hey, listen, have you ever done any kind of digging or excavation? Have you ever found any kind of tomb on this property? And the guy says, well, yeah, actually we did about ten years ago. The, the owner was trying to dig a well, and he discovered this tomb in the side of the rock here. They said, really great. Well, can I see it? He said, no, you can't. He said he buried it as soon as he found it. They said, why would he do that? He said, because he didn't want the attention. He didn't want people digging on his property, so he covered it back up. And he said, but that owner just recently passed away. There's another owner now, so you may want to go talk to him. 
So General Gordon goes to talk to him, and he, he agrees to let him dig. So he starts digging, and he finds this tomb in the side of a rock that has a slot where a stone would have gone to cover it up. And he goes in there, and the tomb... Now, this is what's amazing to me, and this is why... This is one of those cases where, you know, if, if you, this was a murder investigation. There's no DNA and there's no smoking gun, but there's a lot of circumstantial evidence. And what's unique about this particular tomb that Gordon found is that in that day, only wealthy people could afford tombs dug in a rock. I mean, can you imagine the labor that would go into that? I, I can't even imagine. And so for the people that were wealthy enough to do it, most of them only were for one person. And you would walk inside the hole that had been dug in the side of the rock there, in the side of the mountain, and there would be one slab straight ahead for one person. But for the really wealthy people, like Joseph of Arimathea, they would carve two slabs for husband and wife. And in that situation, you would, you would go in there, and there would be a tomb on the left and on the right side. What did Mark say about the angel? He was seated on the right side. And what Gordon found when he walked in this tomb, there was a slab on the left and on the right. And what's amazing to me is on the right side, above the slab where the body would have been, the early Christians had carved in the side of that rock. It was a cross. And it said, Jesus Christ the Messiah, the Alpha and the Omega. I believe that's the one, don't you? I do. And if it is, Mark nailed it, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about uh, seeing the angel on the right side. I'm, I'm intrigued by these things. Uh, but that's not, something to, that's not a hill to die on. I just wanted to share that with you. But what is not up for debate are the things we're about to talk about, the reasons we know that Jesus Christ uh, rose from the dead. I've got a few sub-points under this heading. Uh, the first one being, we know that Jesus rose from the dead because of the witnesses. Now, even here in Mark chapter 16, we've seen witnesses to the resurrected Christ. But we think about all of the writers, the Apostle Paul and uh, the writers of the gospel. And uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul said that Jesus was seen of over 500 people at once. We talked last week or a couple of weeks ago about the Jewish historian who was not a believer. But he was a historian that day, and he recorded what he saw, and he said that Jesus died a horrible death by the hands of the Romans, uh, crucified on Roman cross, and he was seen days later walking around with his disciples. You explain that. We see the witnesses here. And, you know, Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he walked around in and out of the city of Jerusalem for 40 days before he ascended to the Father. So this, this wasn't something that was done in a corner. There was witnesses now... If you're in a court of law and you're trying to win a case and you have literally hundreds of witnesses, you're going to win every time. You're going to win. The witnesses uh, are proof that He rose from the dead, both from the Scriptures and from secular sources who attest to the fact that Jesus was seen alive after His crucifixion. But the second reason we know that Jesus rose from the dead, and this is one... Uh, that non-believers really struggle with. They don't have a coherent explanation for this. And that is the willingness of the disciples to give their life for Jesus Christ after the crucifixion. As I often say, you, you couldn't find the disciples with a coon dog and a GPS on crucifixion day. And all of a sudden, 
They just get this second wind about them to where now they're preaching about Jesus to the point where you can kill them and you still can't shut them up. What happened? What changed? What, what changed in their mind to where they, you couldn't find them on crucifixion day and now all of a sudden they're willing to die for this Messiah that didn't rise from the dead? It makes no sense. History tells us that Peter was crucified upside down. That Andrew was crucified in the shape of an X. And in fact, when they crucified Andrew, um, they actually had tied his hands. They nailed him, but they bound his wrist and his ankles so he would hang there longer and suffer longer. Uh, Thomas was speared to death. Matthew was stabbed to death. Uh, James was clubbed and stoned. Uh, Matthias, now he wasn't one of the initial disciples, but he was Judas's replacement. He was burned alive. Uh, John, it was said that he was burned in hot oil, and of course he wasn't killed. They didn't, you know, they didn't dump him. They didn't throw his body in a big tub of hot oil, but they poured hot oil over his body so it would, ki- it would hurt him without killing him. And after that is when they exiled into Patmos. I, I can only imagine how disfigured he was from all the scars and the burning. And, uh, you know, we could go on and on, but the question is, why? What, ch- what changed them so much? Well, there's a fact they saw the resurrected Christ. They saw Him alive, and you were not going to change their mind. You might have taken their heads, but you weren't going to change their minds. That's because they saw that He was alive, and nobody was going to tell them any differently. The, the secular doubters, they have no answer for that. Because nothing makes sense except for maybe He really did rise from the dead. But then a third reason that we know Jesus rose from the dead is the witness, not only the witnesses and the willingness of the disciples, but the witness. And I'm talking about the fact that Jesus Christ is still changing lives today. He's still saving souls and changing lives and turning people around and taking them from the mire and the mud of sin and cleaning them up and giving them a new heart and a new life and a new outlook. Nobody can explain those things unless Jesus Christ is really alive today. A dead Savior can't do those things. If He was dead, if He was still in that tomb, Christianity wouldn't have spread like it did and we wouldn't be here today doing what we're doing. Um, The witness, you know, I didn't have to travel uh, thousands of miles across the ocean to see an empty tomb to know it was empty. Because I know what He did for me as a 14-year-old boy, and I know how He saved me, and through the preaching of His Word, He convicted me of my sin and showed me that I was a lost sinner on my way to hell, that I needed to be saved by His grace. Dead saviors can't do those things. Um, but then, number four, and I've got some sub-sub points, I guess you call them. I don't know on this one. But a fourth reason we know that Jesus Christ rose from the dead is because of the weakness of the alternatives. The weakness of the alternatives. Now, amazingly, this may surprise you, but in all the years between here and there, to about 2,000 years since Christ was crucified and rose from the dead, there's only been four theories that have ever come out to try to debunk the resurrection. Only four. And they're laughable. And by the way, the mere fact that people have to come up with theories to disprove the resurrection is proof of the resurrection. If He wasn't alive, they wouldn't have to conjure these things up. 
But because they're so weak, I thought I would give them to you this morning. The first theory is the wrong tomb theory. That these ladies uh, came to the wrong tomb. It was early, it was dark, they didn't know they were go- where they were going. Uh, they went to the wrong tomb and it just so happened to be empty. You know, forget the fact that the Scriptures say right there in the last verse of chapter 15, and Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, beheld where he was laid. They saw where he was laid. It's almost like the Lord knew that these guys were coming. But everybody knew where that tomb was at. This was the biggest thing to happen in Jerusalem on crucifixion day. And so big, in fact, that the Romans sent guards to guard the tomb to make sure that the disciples didn't steal him away and claim that he had been risen from the dead. I wonder why they were worried about that in the first place. You think they ever did anybody? You, do you think that the Romans ever guarded any other tomb to make sure that nobody thought he'd been raised from the dead? That tells you something right there. The wrong tomb, it's laughable. It's laughable. And even, even if they had gone to the wrong tomb, the, your first thought is not going to be, oh, well, he must have risen from the dead, because I've seen that happen a good bit, and he <laughs> must have actually risen from the dead. No. You think, well, somebody stole him away. That's exactly what they said at first. They thought he'd been stolen away. The wrong tomb theory is silly, but that's, hey, that's all they got. Uh, but then there's the swoon theory. Oh, this is really good. The swoon theory, that Jesus didn't actually die, he just looked dead. He was just mostly dead, as the old, old movie line. We can talk about that later. But, you know, the Romans, they, they didn't know what they were doing. Poor guys, they don't know anything about killing anybody or crucifixion or torture. They were just, you know, newbies. There was a rookie on the job that day and They didn't know what they were doing as they beat him with a cat of nine tails 39 times and his organs were hanging out. Or uh, mashing a crown of thorns on his head or nailing... Or, guess what? Sticking a spear up under his ribs. (laughs) Didn't die. And then in the coolness of that dark, damp tomb, in that coolness, he was revived. And three days later, he was magically walking around and he didn't even have a limp. Wow. The swoon theory. Yeah, that's a good one. It's all they got. But then there's the stolen body theory. Well, somebody needs to tell the Romans that their guards kind of messed up. You know, they took a nap and, you know, the disciples were able to move this approximately 2,000-pound stone out of the way with nobody waking up and stole him away. You know, it would, if that really would have happened, it would have cost those soldiers their lives. They would have been killed because of that. It would not have happened. It's silly, the stolen body theory, but guess what? Even by having a stolen body theory, you know what they're saying? The tomb's empty. But then the last one, this is my favorite. The, my favorite is what's known as the mass hallucination theory. Yeah, oh yeah. You can't argue with the fact that the disciples willingly died, were brutally murdered for the cause of Christ, which proves He rose from the dead, because you you're not going to do that for a dead guy that never got up. But, you know, it is true. I mean, people can definitely have hallucinations. But I don't know if I've ever heard of a mass hallucination. That they really, you know, they really thought they saw a resurrected Christ, but it wasn't real, but it convinced them and they were willing to die. And I mean, y'all see how silly this is. I mean, you have to have more faith to believe in those things than just to believe that Jesus did exactly what He said, and that's that He got up. That He rose from the dead. 
Indiana doctor uh, Joseph Bergeron studied the crucifixion of Christ and its aftermath for about 10 years. He actually wrote a book called The Crucifixion of Jesus. A medical doctor examines the death and resurrection of Christ. After his 10 years of research on this topic, Bergeron told CBN News, I'm more convinced that what we believe as Christians is true and accurate now as I have ever been. The resurrection matters because it really happened. There has never been a greater love story ever told, and there's never been a story that ended in greater victory or greater glory, and every bit of it is true. Every bit of it. We can take it to the bank. It really happened. It, the, the resurrection matters because it really happened because of the reality. And we can believe that. We can trust that. But then the second thing I want to talk about this morning, why the resurrection matters, not only because of its reality, but because of its ramifications. Look at verse 5. And entering into the sepulchre, they saw a young man on the right side, clothed in a long white garment. They were affrighted. And he saith unto them, Be not affrighted, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you in Galilee. There shall you see him as he said it unto you. And, and one thing I love about this, <clears throat> this is one reason I love preaching through books, is you see some broad things that you never would have seen if you were limited to just one text in one book. But Mark begins with the servant of the Lord, John the Baptist, is, is where Mark starts with the ministry of John the Baptist. It begins with the servant of the Lord telling everyone what the Lord is about to do. He's preparing the way of the Lord. But the book of Mark ends with the servant of the Lord, this angel, talking about what he has done. John said what he would do, and the angel said what he has done. I love that. Mission accomplished. And... Let's just say that the resurrection is true. We've seen that it is. But, you know, some people may attest to that fact and say, well, what does that matter to me today? What does that mean for us today? What are the ramifications? And I would say that the key to answering that question is found in the last phrase of verse 7 where, um, where the angel says, He's risen, and then he says, There you shall see Him as He said, Unto you. He told his disciples, I'll meet you in Galilee. I mean, he told him after I'll get I'll see you in Galilee. Very matter of factly, he knew it was going to happen. And so that, that phrase there, as he said unto you, I tell you what the resurrection means more than anything else, and it means a lot. But I would say right up there at the top, what it means is that we can trust everything that he said. If Jesus Christ and he did, he told his disciples on three different occasions the Son of Man must be killed. But in three days, He'll rise again. Uh, we find in John 2, He told the Pharisees, He said, destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. He was talking about the temple of His body. And so, you know, it's crazy. This is why the disciples didn't get it. They didn't believe Him because they were like, what is He talking about? That doesn't even make sense. Hey, they're going to kill me, but I'm going to raise from the dead. They didn't believe it because they'd never seen it. Yes, Jesus had raised others from the dead by His power, but they died again. Jesus is alive never to die again. Um, and so he made these claims. If he can back that up, we can trust anything that he says. Absolutely anything. From Genesis to Revelation, we can trust the Word of God. Uh, we can trust 
when He openly proclaimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God, and the everlasting God, as we find that in Revelation 1. We can believe Him when He says that. When He said that heaven and earth would pass away, but His Word would never pass away, we can take it to the bank. When He said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh to the Father but by Me, we can trust Him when He says that. When he, when he made those great <clears throat> I am statements in the book of John, where he says, I am the bread of life, and I am the living water. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the door of salvation. I'm the good shepherd that gives his life for the sheep. I am the true vine. We can believe every word of it. When he said that he will judge the world in righteousness, we better be ready, because he's not pretending. It's going to happen. We can be certain right now that He is ruling and reigning, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Why? Because He said so. When He says that He is coming back again for His bride, the church, we can rejoice in that blessed hope. We can take it to the bank. So what are the ramifications of the resurrection? That Jesus Christ is alive forevermore, never to die again. (laughs) He is the supreme ruler of the universe, and not even death could hold Him. Now... Think about that for a minute. I mean, nobody has ever defeated death. Nobody. Not one person. If even one person had been able to do it, then we could say, well, yeah, Jesus did it, but this other guy over here did it too. Nobody. Before Jesus Christ and even after Jesus Christ, death has had a 100% success rate. Pretty good numbers. And yet Jesus defeated death, and not only did He defeat death, He defeated death on our behalf. And even when it comes to what he said in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 29, where he said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. When he makes those kind of invitations to come unto him, we can trust him, we can believe him. He means it. The ramifications of the cross and the ramifications of the resurrection, changes everything. It changes everything. And I hope that's how, that's how you view your life in the context of what Jesus did on the cross and the fact that not only did He rise from the dead, but He's alive today. He's seated at the right hand of the Father today. But this leads me <clears throat> to my last point as I kind of come in for a landing. Um, I, I want to quickly, let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. I want to read this to you. Hebrews chapter 1. I don't believe there's any stronger chapter, and I don't believe there's any stronger book that gives it a greater description of the ramifications of the glory of the resurrection. Let's just read this together. Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory, and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That's pretty strong language there. Uh, It says that, that God communicated to us, not only through His prophets in the Old Testament, but also through His Son that came to this earth. And when we were looking at the Son, we were looking at the Father. Yes, 
They're one in being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, but we know they're separate in persons. But he says that that's the way that God the Father communicated Himself to the world by sending His Son. That's an unspeakable thought. And isn't it amazing, and I love to think about it like this. But whenever Jesus came to this earth, think about all the things He did. All the people that He healed at a 100% success rate for the people that He dealt with. He healed all diseases. He raised the dead. He cast out devils. He had power over devils. And He rose from the dead and He preached truth and all these things. You know what that was? That was the invasion of the kingdom of God into this earthly kingdom. And that was just a little sample, just a little preview of what it's going to be like when we rule and reign with Him. I sure am looking forward to that, aren't you? And so we, we see um, the power here. And on this third point, I really want to drive home the real issue of the resurrection. The real issue here. But let's finish reading Hebrews 1, and I'll close out with some thoughts. <clears throat> uh, verse 4 says, "...being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, <coughs> he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, talking about the Son, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of Thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even Thy God, hath anointed Thee with the oil of gladness above Thy fellows. And Thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of Thine hands. They shall perish, but Thou remainest. And they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up. And they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand, until I make thy enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Listen to this very first verse, and I'm done in Hebrews of chapter 2 here. Therefore we ought, therefore, based on what we just read, the fact that He is alive and He is ruling and reigning. Therefore, in that context, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Because He's alive, we should live for Him and worship Him and reverently fear Him because He is ruling and reigning on the throne. And here's the real issue. I'm closing with this thought. The real issue concerning the resurrection is not whether or not it really happened. It did. It really happened. That's not the issue. Uh, the issue is are you willing to submit to His Lordship? See, that's the problem. I, I like what Spurgeon said one time. He said, man has no problem with God being anywhere but upon His throne. And I'm being honest with you. There's a lot of people in this world both past and present, that wishes that tomb wasn't empty. They wish his dead corpse was still in there. Nothing but dried up bones. They wish he was dead. They wish God was dead. But he's alive. And the fact that he is alive means that you're not a God. You're not in control of your destiny. You don't get the final say. He's in control. 
And the question is, not that He's alive, He is. But are you willing to submit His Lordship? Do you really want Him as Lord and Savior? He can wash you, He can clean you, He can forgive you, He can make you His child and give you a home in heaven, but do you really want Him to be the Lord of your life? Um, The resurrection of Christ means that He is alive and that He will either be your Lord and Savior or that He will be your judge, but He's not going away. I would just encourage you, if you're not saved, to repent and believe the gospel because He's alive. And I, I read this on Sunday night because we were kind of looking at the crucifixion uh, in the Old Testament. I wanted to kind of bring that out. But, but something that I, I didn't see for a long, long time, um, and I don't know if I read it somewhere, I think I read it somewhere, but it just really blew me away, is if you look at the Psalms 22, 23, and 24, there's a progression there. They're all Messianic Psalms. Psalm 22 deals with the suffering servant, and it gives a great description of the cross. It even quoted, uh, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It prophesied about the Roman soldiers parting his garments and making bets, casting lots on his garments. And so you see the suffering servant. It gives a description about the fact that he said, I can see all my bones. They look and stare at me, talking about the abuse that he took from the cat of nine tails. It's such a great... uh, prophecy about the cross. But then in Psalm 23, we're all familiar with it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And what a beautiful psalm that is about the good shepherd that loves his sheep and is willing to give his life for his sheep. And so we see that progression. But then in Psalm 24, I mean, it's to me, it's one of the greatest texts in all the Word of God because in Psalm 24, it talks about the glory of the returning King. (laughs) And to me... Psalm 24 is the greatest description of what happens when Jesus ascends to the Father 40 days after the resurrection. You know, I've often wondered in my mind, and you know, there's certain things I believe that God didn't give us much detail about because we probably just couldn't handle it. But maybe we'll get to learn one of these days. But I, I wonder, can you imagine the scene in heaven when Jesus Christ, after being nailed to a Roman cross and all the things He went through, And after He rose from the dead and He walks the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and then He ascends back up to where He came from, can you imagine that moment when He walks through the gates? Total victory. Total glory. Total vindication. Can you imagine seeing it? We're going to see Him one day in all of His glory. But I can't imagine that moment. But Psalm 24, after Psalm 22 talks about the death of Christ and 23 talks about Him being the good shepherd that's willing to give His life for the sheep. And Psalm 24 talks about that glorious return. And in Psalm 24 and verse 7 through 10 it says, you don't have to turn here, I'll just read it to you, but you, I would encourage you to study those three psalms together in your own time. But it said, lift up your head, O ye gates, and be lift up ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. In other words, He's come home. <laughs> Open the gates. And it says, the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. There's no greater truth in this earth than that. And I'm so overjoyed. We, we talked in the study Friday night about knowing God, but... The greatest part of that is that He knows me. Do you know Him? 
in the pardon of your sin because He's either going to be your Lord and Savior or He's going to be your judge. And that's why the world wants Him dead. Because they, they want to do what they want to do without Him being their judge. And the greatest hope for the atheist is that when they die, they take an eternal dirt nap, and on the other side of that death, there's not a God waiting to judge them in all His holiness and righteousness. They're going to be sadly mistaken and sadly disappointed. He's alive today, friend. And I'll say this and I'm done. This, this could honestly be its own sermon. <laughs> but as far as practical implications for the saved today, not only are we saved, but it means a lot even in our own life. Um, I think about these ladies when they went to the tomb. They were, they were talking amongst themselves, and before they got there, they were concerned. They said, who's going to be able to move these stone, the stone away? But it was a problem they didn't have to worry about. Why? Because he's alive. There are certain things that we worry about that when we get to heaven and we see him, there'll just be something in the past that we worried about and probably shouldn't have. He'll take care of problems that we worry about. But can I tell you, there's a lot of things that he takes care of behind the scenes that we don't even know about. You know, the ladies made their way to the tomb. They didn't even know. It was being guarded by Roman soldiers. And evidently they still don't know because they were either dead, gone, or asleep, but they didn't keep them from getting to the tomb. There's so many things that the Lord goes before us and He takes care of, and we don't, we don't even know about them. We don't even know. The protection, the guidance, uh, the, the joy, all the things He does for us. Why? Because He's alive. The fact that he's alive means that everything will be made right. And you can take that to the bank. He's alive today. Would you stand?